This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of The Overcomers, God's Vision for You to Thrive in an Age of Anxiety and Outrage, written and narrated by pastor and best-selling author Matt Chandler, and is available everywhere audiobooks are sold. Hello, this is Russell Moore, and this is the Russell Moore Podcast, and specifically the questions and ethics time, uh, where I take your dilemmas, things that you're wrestling with right now about moral or ethical issues that you're facing, and try to help you think them through. And remember, if you have a question, maybe something you're facing at work or at home or in your church or wherever, uh, send it to me at questions at russellmore.com. And I'll use a different name uh, for you unless you specifically tell me to use your real name. We're not going to embarrass you on this uh, podcast. But write in, let me know what you're grappling with and thinking through, and we'll uh, try our best. A lot of people have written in over the question of their families being divided over politics. I I, uh, addressed a little bit of this. We had a a reader of my newsletter who also was named Russell, uh, who wrote in about a situation that he was having, but I've received, I can't even tell you how many questions about uh, this sort of issue of families that are maybe sometimes divided, maybe sometimes just on edge over politics. Some, Some people said they didn't want to go home for the holidays because it was going to inevitably end up in some sort of an argument. Some had a situation where their, uh, in one case, their grown children wouldn't allow these people to see their grandchildren because they were on different sides uh, politically and specifically of a particular political personality. And then a lot of things in between those sorts of uh, those sorts of situations. Now, this is something that, to some degree, I suppose, has always been true, but has has changed rapidly uh, in recent years. I, I remember my grandfather and uh, my great uncle, his brother, uh, would sometimes have these kind of. Uh, smiling, sparring contests, you know, at, at, at holidays because uh, my great uncle was a hardcore Goldwater Reagan sort of uh, Republican, conservative Republican. And my grandfather was a New Deal Democrat uh, who revered Franklin Roosevelt and Hubert Humphrey, people like that. And so they would just sort of tease each other back and forth. And, uh, you know, the the, the brother would say, Kenny wants to nationalize uh, our dinner plans, whatever. I mean, it's those sorts of, of just teasing back and forth. Now, though, uh, it's a different uh, sort of situation where it, it's not just that people have differing opinions, or even strongly held opinions, as much as that they want to excommunicate one another. Uh, over those things, and and to actually uh, see people as the enemy, people are divided in ways that they just they just um, haven't been in a long time in our experience. And we may say, well, why? And a great deal of that, I think, has to do with the fact that politics has become an idol uh, in in the New Testament uh, word of uh, meaning of the word idol, something that's giving almost ultimate meaning. Uh, and this is a this is a trap that the Bible uh, talks about often, going all the way back to uh, you, you have descriptions of uh, sometimes the idolatry is a desire to kind of tap into some power 
that someone has. So the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the going down to Egypt, as the prophets say, for their their horses and their chariots. And sometimes it's uh, a fear of uh, some power. You, you have to be reminded that these are just these are just men of flesh, um, not uh, not something that can be ultimately feared. And in reality, those two things tend to go together. Uh, someone's afraid of something, and so they want to tap into some sort of power. But also because of uh, much of what's happening in terms of politics right now is about self identity and uh, and self fulfillment. Uh, there was an older minister who told me one time, uh, and I've seen it bear itself out for a long time because we're talking about people who love to just attack people on, say, social media or in other contexts as well. And he said, you know, there are some people who want to find a sense of self-worth, and so they find somebody they think is important and sort of attach themselves to that person. And then there are other people who want to feel important, and they find somebody they think is important and attack so they can get the attention uh, from whoever they think is important and give themselves some sort of meaning. And that really uh, is a lot of what goes on really across the spectrum in contemporary life when it comes to politics. There's a, a really fascinating book. You won't agree with everything in it, but there's a lot of thought-provoking material. Uh, Christopher Freeman, I think the book is called Why It's Okay Not to Love Politics or something like that. Uh, But he talks about the monopolization of identity by politics. And he says, he he makes a case, I think he's exactly right about this, that, that politics right now isn't about here are some principles that, that I have from Edmund Burke or from John Rawls or from wherever, and here are a set of problems and here are the best ways that I think we can get to some sort of civic good. That's usually not what's happening right now. Instead, he says that it's, it's more a question of identity. And so your political stance is much less about whether you think um, – Milton Friedman or John Maynard Keynes is is more right about uh, economics. It's much more about do you prefer Walmart or Whole Foods, NASCAR or soccer, and and as he points out, you can you can tell largely where somebody's going to fall on the political spectrum based upon whether they live closer to a Hobby Lobby or, or to a Trader Joe's. You know, the, the, those sorts of realities are much more what uh, often these political divisions are about. And he also argues, and I think this is right too, that most of the political identification that we see now is more about hatred for the out party than, it's a, than it is about affection for the in party. And that's not only something that we see with politics. I mean, I've, I've seen that in religious life where there are theologies that aren't so much about affection for the theological system or the denominational tradition or whatever, as much as there is an antagonism toward whatever is seen as the rival system or the rival tradition. But that's why in politics, so so much of it is, is presented in apocalyptic terms. Uh, you're either winning completely or you're losing completely, 
And if you lose this election or, or you lose this, um, this, this news cycle or whatever, you've lost it all. And that's also why you can have the same views that are going to flip interventionism in foreign policy. Is that good or bad? Uh, free trade, is that good or bad? Often that's going to flip completely, not based upon changing people changing their minds about uh, the data and the consequences and so forth, but just because of where the personalities uh, in their political movements go. And people can move from one to the other. Right now, at almost breakneck speeds because it's about their identity. Now, that becomes really difficult uh, in a Christian context, especially when you have uh, some people who actually believe in the politics and the Christianity is a means to an end to that. That's where the identity is, rather than people who are identified and shaped and habituated by Christianity and then that has implications uh, for some of the views that they hold socially, culturally, politically. It becomes a kind of identity, and then the politics becomes a, a sort of identity protection. So uh, when you say, I disagree with your political views or I disagree with your political candidate, it's received not as I'm not, you haven't really made your case about whether or not these tax cuts are going to work or whatever. What you're instead saying is, uh, I think you are bad. And, uh, and, you know, the reverse is true too. It's not just that uh, I think that you're naive uh, on your political views, or I think you're wrong because you, you don't see where these things are going to lead. It's instead you're an evil person. And, and that's one of the reasons why you end up with some of these crazy kinds of uh, conspiracy theories about uh, people in political life, because it just, it, it isn't as satisfying to say, I think this person has public policy views that are wrong. Instead, it's, I think this is a person who's part of a secret cabal that's trying to destroy me. You know, so, so it becomes this sort of uh, all-encompassing kind of, of story. And what that leads to is exhaustion. I mean, I think we all have experienced this to some degree or, or the other. I mean, I'm somebody who I work, you know, part of what I, I do is working in uh, public policy, work with a lot of people who are in politics. I used to love politics, not, not just at the sort of as, as part of the mission, but used to actually just love the sport of uh, politics, for lack of a, a better word. Uh, you can see, you know, over my shoulder, I have a bobblehead of James Madison back there. There's one of Thomas Jefferson over here. There's, I'm looking at one of George W. Bush and of uh, John F. Kennedy, and, and uh, there's Joe Biden, and there's you know, there's so many uh, of these uh, political figures uh, who I have uh, in bobbleheads. And I, I'm looking right now at a whole series of, of books and biographies on Teddy Roosevelt and on uh, Franklin Roosevelt and on Harry Truman and George Bush and uh, the 1968 and 1972, 1976 presidential elections and so forth. But I have found uh, in, in recent years that 
there is a kind of exhaustion that comes in. It hasn't completely gotten rid of that love. I mean, I, I'm also, I'm looking at a campaign poster for my old boss that I served back when I was a really, really young guy. Uh, have over my shoulder a picture of a goat that we had one of his political signs uh, hanging around back in 1989, uh, special election when I was just a teenager working for him. I have a tweet uh, right over there of a former president of the United States calling me a nasty guy with no heart who's terrible at my job. And uh, I have it hanging on the wall. Uh, you know, there are all sorts of things that I can just sort of see around me right now. And there are a lot of people that I know who similarly uh, would have in a previous era would have thought I could never get enough political news. I could never get enough uh, political debate. And now many people, maybe most people, are exhausted by everything being uh, politicized. So it's it's not as though you take a break from sort of normal life to argue about whether or not Saddam Hussein has weapons of mass destruction or whether or not the banks should be bailed out uh, after the the Great Recession. Instead, uh, it's everything is a, a matter of political debate. And one of the things that Christopher Freeman argues in his book is that the reason that that one of the reasons that it happens is that you have fewer and fewer of what he calls cross cutters, people who uh, are, are sort of at different intersections uh, of these uh, political and cultural realities. So you have fewer and fewer, you know, if you go back to the Whole Foods and um, or Trader Joe's, Whole Foods, and and Hobby Lobby, Chick Fil A, that sort of conversation. You have fewer and fewer people who are living in both of those worlds. You, you have fewer and fewer people. You have some sort of um, hyper progressives who are uh, who, who are at Cracker Barrel, and you have some hard right conservatives who are at the organic vegan food segment, but you don't have a lot of people who are cross-cutting in those areas. And so when people are, uh, are are that divergent and they're wanting to affirm their identities, that's what raises the, the stakes and raises the level, um, not to mention the sort of outside figures who are constantly, whether through media channels or something else, constantly saying, People who aren't with you are going to destroy you. And that creates the, the sort of world that we're in right now. So if you're in this situation and you have a family that uh, is divided over some of these uh, political questions, what should you do? Well, the advice that I give to most people is, is first of all, don't inflame the situation. And when I say don't inflame the situation, what I don't mean by that is that you have to pretend that you don't think the things you do, pretend that you don't believe the things that you do. I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is you don't have to argue about everything. That's not backing away from something that you believe to be true. As a matter of fact, Jesus is modeling this so often. There, there are so many disputes and controversies that are going on 
during the, the time and ministry of Jesus in Galilee and Jerusalem, where uh, with, with really high stakes, uh, the Roman Empire is occupying Israel. Jesus is encountering zealots who want to overthrow the Roman Empire. He is also encountering tax collectors who are collaborating with the Roman Empire. And there are times when Jesus answers questions more often, what he's doing is sort of reframing the questions. Should we pay tax to Caesar, whose image is on this coin? He's reframing the questions and getting to what he believes is really important, not just the standing controversy. And then in other cases, he doesn't answer the questions at all. When the, when the brothers uh, are having a dispute with one another over their inheritance, it's kind of a political, in a family politics uh, sense, over the inheritance, Jesus doesn't come in and decide who's right and who's wrong. He says, who, who made me a judge over you? And he continues on with his mission. Um, in one instance, when the religious leaders are questioning him, knowing that what they're trying to do is, is to catch him in his words, as the Bible says, uh, Jesus asks them a question that becomes politically difficult for them to answer about whether or not John the Baptist was a, a prophet of God. And when they wouldn't answer it, he says, well, neither am I going to, to, to answer your question. So Jesus so often is not getting involved in pre-existing arguments, even as he is creating arguments where there are none uh, pre-existing. So uh, no, nobody's arguing on the shore of Galilee in John 6 whether or not uh, you should uh, eat human flesh and drink human blood. Jesus creates that argument because he's wanting to call them to what it means to be in union with him. So he's not engaging in every argument. And what you're going to find is there are some people who get into arguments because the conversation just sort of goes there and before they know it, they're in an argument. But there are also a lot of people who actually enjoy arguing for the sake of arguing. Uh, these are not typically uh, healthy people. And uh, these are also typically not people who are uh, going to be moved by walking through reasons uh, and to be persuaded, because uh, if if they wanted that, that requires a certain kind of emotional and identity distance uh, to to look at reasons and to look at facts and to sort of walk through a, an empathetic mindset that's able to see where the other person is coming from. That's usually not what's going on. Instead. What's usually going on is that there are either people who enjoy arguing and, and want to be in an argument because for all sorts of reasons. I mean, some people just love the rush that that gives to them. Some people, uh, it gives them the ability to feel like they're emulating uh, people that they watch on television or they listen to on the radio. Uh, and for other people, what they're really wanting is affirmation. What, what they're wanting is for you to say, I agree with you. Uh, there was somebody in my life that way, uh, not so much on political issues as on, this was a person who was involved in prosperity, gospel, charismatic stuff, plus conspiracy theory, world's about to end stuff, plus sort of prophecy chart prediction uh, making. And, and this was somebody who knew that I wasn't uh, along those lines, but would come up and say things. Now, 
don't you think that when the mutants come, as detailed in Matthew chapter 24, that we're not going to even recognize them because of the microchips that are in our bloodstream? Or don't you think that um, brother whoever on television is right when he says that we're living in the terminal generation and we should all be uh, buying freeze-dried food from him? Uh, those sorts of things. And, and what, what I think she wanted, I really don't think she wanted an argument. I really think what she wanted was for me to say, yes, I think that's right. I was in an awkward situation because I, I couldn't give affirmation to those things. And this, there wasn't any confusion. This was a person who knew I wasn't on board with those things. I also didn't want to argue about those things. I, I cared about this person. I wanted to see this person. I didn't want to argue about those sorts of things. So I try to find a way to let her know I hear you and I'm respecting you in terms of what you're saying, but this isn't what I'm interested in doing. And so I learned, I learned actually something from a colleague of mine years ago named Tom Schreiner, a New Testament scholar, who I saw in a situation where people would try to divert him onto questions that weren't of relevance to what he was talking about. And rather than get sidetracked or embarrassing or humiliating the person who was asking the question, what I would see Tom do is say, huh. And I mean, that doesn't say, I agree with you. It doesn't say, I disagree with you. It says, I hear you, and we're, we're moving on uh, to, to something else. Uh, and find a way, if you're in that sort of a, a divided situation, uh, because the direction of the country, or no matter what the issue is, is not going to be decided at that Thanksgiving table. This is about the argument, not about the issue. Find a way to connect with people who disagree with you without uh, bringing up or getting into those points of disagreement. Now, you may say, well, that's uh, lying. No, it's really, it's really not lying at all. It's instead, it's instead something that we do all the time as an act of, of love for people. When, when somebody comes in and, and announces uh, his engagement, uh, you don't start talking about with the new fiance, this guy's ex-girlfriend. You're, you're, you're not going to do that. I mean, does that mean that you're pretending that the ex-girlfriend doesn't exist? No, but you're not wanting to uh, create that sense of awkwardness or, or hurt to the fiance. There are, I like a lot of Hank Williams music, as you know, there are a lot of Hank Williams songs I don't bring up in front of a friend of mine who's a recovering alcoholic. Because it's, it's uh, songs about uh, the regret and pain of drunkenness that he and I are you know, going to talk about, but I'm not going to talk about it in that context. Um, and so there are all sorts of things that we do that way all the time. If you're in a situation, like a lot of you are who are writing to me, where it's not so much that you're trying to find a way to avoid it, it's that you can't avoid it because people are saying to you, we want to talk about this all the time. Uh, even in one case with a text thread, sort of a family text thread, and the person said to me, I, you know, I want to know how the nieces are doing and I want to know this. I don't want to uh, listen to endless conspiracy theories about COVID vaccines or whatever the 
the stuff is. Okay, in those situations, what you can do is to say, look, I love you and I want to be around you. You know, you and I don't agree on this stuff. So why don't we just avoid that? And we can talk about that with other people. And let's you and I just talk about uh, talk about the stuff that we're, we're both really interested in, about each other and about our families and about uh, th- those sorts of things. And let's just sort of call a, a no-go zone on that stuff. And what you can do, sometimes many of you will find that the, the people you're talking to will say, yeah, I agree with you. I think that's a good thing to do. Does that mean that everybody's going to going to keep their end of the deal on it? No, but you can have a sort of humor of saying, uh-oh, uh, you know, I feel like we're going into the zone or, or whatever. And often somebody say, oh, you're right. I'm, I'm, I'm realizing that now. And, and you pull back. Is that always going to happen? No, because a lot of you are going to find people who genuinely have, it's not just that they have strongly held political views, they genuinely have political views or, again, more commonly opposition to a, a group identity or a political identity that is the governing principle of their lives. In those cases, can you change that? No, you can't. Uh, you, you certainly can't change that in an argument. What you can do, though, is to try to find those ways where you can get together and not have those those sorts of divisions and conflicts. But you can't always guarantee it. So, I mean, Hebrews 12, 14 says to strive for peace with everyone. And uh, Romans 12, 18 says, so far as it is possible with you, live peaceably with all people. It's not always possible, but you can certainly try to, to do that. And uh, if you're somebody, maybe you're somebody who has children who are involved uh, with you. Couple things here. One of them is, some people have told me that They've had family members or friends who have tried to talk to their children, these people's children, about why the kid's parents are wrong. <laughs> Don't do that. Don't be that person. Uh, that, that's not appropriate at all. But also, if you're the parent, uh, give your children the imagery of somebody who's not trying to sink into and to conform into some crowd. So it's not that your children are seeing you as somebody, oh, when dad's in this context, he's one way, but when he's in this context, he he changes and he becomes something completely different and becomes inauthentic to what he really believes. You're not going to give that impression. Instead, give the impression of somebody who's saying to your children, "Um, I have certain views but they're not more important to me than trying to love and to connect with people who disagree with me. And I think your children will really learn a lot when they see that. And then what you can do is maybe you're in one of these awkward sorts of situations. Uh, What you can do is say to your children without saying anything negative about the the, the other family members, uh, just just say, well, Uncle Ronnie and Aunt Maggie have different views than I have. Uh, try to represent their views as fairly as you can in a way that 
If Uncle Ronnie and Aunt Maggie were there, they would say, yeah, that's exactly what I believe. Tell them what it is. You can tell them, I don't see it the same way, and here's why. But give to them an understanding of the fact that what you're trying to teach them is to love their country, work for their country where they can, work for their neighborhood and the common good where they can, but don't ever outsource your conscience to a political party. Don't ever give a politician your soul. And don't ever become the kind of person who is unable to see those things that are more important than politics and uh, these sorts of identity divisions that we have right now. Show them what it means to be somebody who can understand uh, people who are different than you are, uh, somebody who can love people who disagree with you, but there are going to be boundaries where you say, if you want to argue about stuff that I find exhausting to argue about, that's just not what I'm here for. But have that conversation explicitly. And what I think what you'll find is that most people are going to be willing to to give it a go. But in the meantime, understand that this sort of politicization of everything, it'll ruin your country, it'll ruin your life, and it'll sure ruin your Thanksgiving. Do you have a question? Something that you're grappling with morally or ethically right now? Well, let me know about that. Email it to me at questions at russellmore.com, and I'll do my best to answer it. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Russell Moore Podcast. If you haven't yet, uh, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, Stitcher, Pocket Cast, wherever you listen. Be sure to subscribe to us here. Leave a review if you can. It helps people to find uh, the podcast. And if you're listening on a smartphone, just tap the screen or swipe the cover art and you'll find show notes uh, to this episode. This is Russell Moore. Onward. This episode was brought to you in part by the Compelled Podcast, which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.